We recently brought you an interview with one of this year's Data for Diplomacy awardees from the State Department. It cited the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations for its work in a program called Conflict Observatory. Team lead Susan Wolfenbarger joins us once again for an update on a new observation post in the deeply troubled Sudan. Dr. Wolfenbarger, good to have you with us. Tell us again in general what these conflict observatories are. What do they consist of and what do they look at? Sure. The Conflict Observatory Program is a way that we are harnessing remote data feeds and technologies to monitor crisis situations around the world. We're taking advantage of things like commercial satellite imagery and other open source information that's available globally and can help us understand events on the ground. So what are some of the types of feeds that might be helpful in Sudan right now? We're taking advantage of a lot of new uh, data feeds in Sudan. For example, we're using a lot of high-resolution satellite imagery to monitor events on the ground. We're also using thermal imagery because a lot of conflict events also produce heat signatures. And so thermal detections can actually give us a lot of ideas about where we should be looking For example, with the burning events that have been in the news in Darfur, it helps us quickly triage large areas and figure out where we should be looking. And this civil war has produced refugees and large numbers of people on movement. Are you able to have feeds, drone pictures, or some means of tracking what's going on on that front? We're also using a data source called human mobility data, and that really helps us understand some of those more fine-grained movements of population. So this is using location data from cell phones, and it's helping us to understand the population shifts that are happening on the ground, which can be really helpful for responding and assisting in humanitarian operations because we have much more detailed information about where people have left and where they have gone to. Right. So just a side question. In some nations, they can maybe block those signals or turn off the cell towers and this kind of thing. So has that been the case in the Sudan Observatory, or has it been pretty much an even data flow? There are internet outages and things that are happening on the ground across Sudan that does impact the timeliness of the data in some cases. But what happens with this feed is that even when a device does not currently have internet access, it stores the information and then is able to transmit it once it regains a signal. So sometimes there is a delay on that information, but we're still getting it significantly more quickly than we could in any other mechanism. And are there unstructured sources of data that also feed into the observatory? For example, news accounts, which are text, or human observation that is reporting into people at the State Department or maybe coming through military reports? Yes, absolutely. A big component of the work in Sudan is using open source investigation techniques. So these are really developed methods for monitoring all of the information that is posted on the internet, because there's so much that's shared on social media, on chat platforms, even statements by officials are part of what is collected. And so as they come across photos and videos that are found online, you can actually geolocate those uh, using these techniques where you identify key aspects of that photo or video and tie it to known locations in satellite imagery. So that helps them get views of what's going on on the ground that you wouldn't be able to get from just a satellite image alone. 
And what about the technology aspects of this? I mean, you are a technical person or a diplomatic person, or you bridge those two things? Because it sounds like there has to be some really good technical underpinnings from the IT staff to be able to enable these observatories. I'm actually a geographer by training, and my specialization is in remote sensing, so doing the type of analysis that the teams are doing as part of the conflict observatory. But I do work at the State Department, and so I'm figuring out how we can really leverage all of these analytic techniques, all these data feeds, and bringing them in to support the goals of the State Department and our, our work in the diplomatic realm. We're speaking with Susan Wolfenbarger. She's a team lead in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the State Department, and I can understand why you got an award for data for diplomacy and all of this effort. These feeds come in, then what happens? How are they integrated? How are they turned into products? You can't put them in a pouch and seal it with wax. So we have a analytic platform that we're using for the conflict observatory. And this platform is where we ingest all of the data feeds. And then all of the teams that are part of the conflict observatory, including the Yale Humanitarian Research Lab, Plantscape AI, and Esri, are then doing their research and documentation activities on that platform. And that's a really secure FISMA high system. It's a very secure way of doing all of the analysis and being able to decide what information is shared publicly and what isn't. Because as you can imagine, doing this type of an analysis of a war zone creates some sensitive information. And earlier we spoke about the work of the observatory in Ukraine. Did learnings there somehow inform the setup of the observatory, the newest one in Sudan? Absolutely. All of the data feeds that we're using and the platform itself are available to be used anywhere in the world. And so when we started discussing a Sudan conflict observatory, it was really easy, relatively speaking, to add that component to the work because we have experienced analysts, we have all of the global data feeds that we needed, and we just need to bring them together and point them at Sudan. And other components of the government do data gathering and geolocation work. There's the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which has the really big view. But then there might be military assets, even though we're not involved as much in the Sudan you know, militarily, but maybe observing what's going on. Is there a chance to get feeds from other sources outside of the State Department and vice versa? Can your feeds maybe help the military if they request that feed? All the information that the teams are using to create their documentation is com is completely unclassified and open source or commercial information. And they're making that publicly available so that anyone can access it on their website. All right. Sounds like the answer is no then in that case. And who are the consumers of this within the State Department? And who do you sense might be using this open source data maybe outside the State Department? academics, perhaps, or, or whomever. One of the biggest focus areas of this program is support to humanitarian operations. And so the teams are partnering directly with groups that are planning aid deliveries and other actions on the ground in Sudan. So this real-time geographic data that they are analyzing and producing analysis of is really critical in being able to provide a real-time awareness of what's happening on the ground as people are thinking about operating and making movements across Sudan. So it might inform someone like, say, a contractor for USAID that could be operating there, knowing where it's safe to go or where they can't go or otherwise being able to adjust their plans. Would that be like a use case? I think one of the best use cases is thinking about humanitarian convoys 
So when you are trying to plan a movement from maybe Port Sudan to another location, being able to understand where there are checkpoints or where roads might be destroyed or a bridge might be out is really critical information. And so this information that's being shared out and created by the team can really help any of any groups that are working on that type of operations on the ground. And a final question, how permanent are these observatories, these data collection sets that are then, you know, analyzed and and combined and so forth? Do you shut them off at some point or what's the long-term plan for each of the observatories? You've got a couple of them up and running now. Yeah, I think that the different observatories have different time periods associated with them. For example, in Ukraine, where we're doing war crimes documentation, the justice and accountability processes that those are trying to assist can last for 10 or 15 years. And so we have to think about storing that information and making it accessible for a much longer time period than what we might in a more rapidly evolving humanitarian focused type of operation that we're supporting in Sudan. So it's really about, you know, the end goal of the program and what we're trying to achieve. And I imagine a long base of observation, maybe after the conclusion of a conflict or the recession of it, let's say, that itself could be a good analytical tool to compare what was going on in the heat of it versus what was going on in the tail of it. Absolutely. It's always really helpful as we're trying to understand what was happening in a conflict to have that type of information. It's so unusual to have a way to create it. And so this documentation that we're doing with the different conflict observatory programs is creating new information that people would not otherwise have access to. And that's going to really inform a lot of our research and understanding in the longer term. And do you have a dashboard in Foggy Bottom that you sit and kind of stare at all day? We have a lot of dashboards, um, and they are really fun to interact with. Susan Wolfenbarger is a team lead in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations at the State Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the Sudan Conflict Observatory at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career 
numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. 
So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time 
on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.